Thank you. Thank you. Well, welcome to uh, Glossop Record Club, and uh, we've got a very special guest, Paul Denoyer, who um, has written many books and has worked for uh, many music publications over the years, starting with Enemy in the late 70s. Uh, yes. And yeah. Q, then Mojo, yeah, then Mojo. Word. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm not missing anything out. Uh, Heat magazine <laughs> I launched. Heat magazine as well. And uh, Paul's obviously uh, has also written uh, several books. Uh, there's great books on uh, London music and Liverpool music. A uh, book about John Lennon, a book about Deaf School, uh, a sort of Liverpool uh, pre-punk band, I guess you'd say, from the mid-70s. And um, the, kind of the main reason we're here tonight really is uh, that this book has just come out in paperback, Conversations with McCartney. Uh, maybe we could start with your very first meeting with Paul McCartney and then perhaps also the last time you met him and what you remember of of that the last one today but what, what was the first time that you met him uh, the first time was in 1979 I was I just started writing for the uh, NME and um, they just said look um, you're from Liverpool uh, McCartney's playing a gig in Liverpool and he's going to do a little press conference uh, at, uh, at the gig uh, so why don't you go? And it's just, it's a measure of just how low in esteem McCartney was held <laughs> at the time that they sent me, you know, instead of, because generally whenever there was something really good to be done, yeah. they'd send, um, you know, Nick Kent or Charles Sean, one of the star writers would do it. You know, every week they'd have a meeting and they'd say, okay, coming up this week, um, who wants to do... Uh, Debbie Harry in Honolulu, and I'd put my hand up and <laughs> they just over every on. time. Yeah. Um, but anyway, this this particular week, they say uh, nineteen uh, in 1979. They say, um, yeah, Paul McCartney's going to do a little five people around the table after the gig, and I thought the just most fantastic assignment I could possibly have. You know, no one else was remotely interested, and it was a trip back to uh, to Liverpool and stay with mum and dad. So that was the first, it was, and it, was, um, it was only a little press conference, it wasn't a big interview, but mm. um, the experience of finally speaking to a Beatle um, for somebody of my generation was, uh, was, was overwhelming, and yeah. although I've never really been starstruck ever since, I certainly was on that occasion, and it's, it's a slightly out-of-body-ish experience, you know, you can, <laughs> like being on the operating table, there's, there's, kind of, there's kind of a U floating around the ceiling, looking down at the U that's sitting across from Paul McCartney. And, um, you have a little voice in your head going, oh my uh, God, ask, I'm talking to Paul yes, McCartney. Yes, exactly, yeah, you've yeah. always got this, um, this double voice going on, you know, so Paul, tell me about the new tour, you know, and how did the album come to you? Some really duff question, but at the same time you're thinking, bloody hell, I'm talking to Paul McCartney. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the first time. And uh, what was the last time? When did you last see him? Um, to be honest, I can't remember. It was only two years ago, but it was just another kind of interview. Oh, okay. I've, I've, I've done, him, done him, interviewed him 30 times or so. So after the first time, they start to merge into each other a bit, sure. you know. A bit blasé about it. <laughs> not really. I'm still excited, but, um, but yeah. they're not as distinctive as the, yeah, as sure. the early ones, obviously. You know. I mean, the book originally came out, was it six, seven months ago in, uh, in Hardback? It came out about, it? A year, about a year ago in Hardback. Oh, it was about a year ago, okay. And um, have you had any feedback from, from Paul himself, or have you heard via his people? Um, no, um, I haven't seen him since the book has come out, and I don't know whether he's uh, read it or not. The premise, when I first... Because uh, I, I, I've done all these interviews with him over the years, I thought... 
most of them were done for... I know nobody has read all these interviews because they all appeared in different magazines or they were in press releases or they were in sleeve notes. Um, you know, not even the most diehard McCartney fan will have read all this. So why don't I put them all together and interlace them with my own commentary on what it, what it was like meeting him, blah, blah, blah. And so I, I sent him um, an email, um, said, you know, because he owns the copyright actually to quite a few of the interviews because they were done for his company. Um, so I had to get his permission and, um, and he emailed me back uh, straight away mm. I, I said look the great thing is that you know, I've got all this material you don't have to do anything it's all there yeah. you know. and he emailed me back and said um, yeah I think you should go ahead as long as uh, you, you hold to your quotes that I don't have to do anything mm. uh, <laughs> if, if that being the case uh, all is fine yeah. so that was the deal and so I didn't get him to write a forward or do any promotion and um, but he, he was great help. He gave me the, the copyright for free. He helped. He gave me the pictures for free and so yeah. on. And they've been promoting it through the website, so they've been pretty helpful, really. Shall we um, listen to a track? Yeah, yeah. That's it. It's Glossop Record Club. Mm. Um, mm. I'm going to play uh, backseat of my car. Yeah. Off Ram. Do you want to? Uh, Ram was the uh, the second. Um, solo record he made after the Beatles and um, it's probably one of the best actually it's one that stood the test of time it's completely it's a chaotic uh, record going off in all sorts of directions but it's crammed with pop tunes of the sort that McCartney used to be able to knock off uh, with great ease and this is probably the most produced considered track it's the grand finale Backseat of My Car and it's a sort of epic uh, teen runaway romance the, the boy and the girl like Romeo and Juliet in the backseat of a Cadillac, you know, yeah. snogging and then hitting the highway and blah, blah, blah. The subtext is that the big bad parents who are chasing them, I think in McCartney's head, are the Beatles, Apple. The oh, Beatles okay. are what he's running away from. One of the, uh, the aims of the book that you, uh, you say early on is to try and redress the, the balance in terms of the 45 years of solo career as opposed to about a decade of being in the Beatles. And obviously there's a, there's a list of sort of 50 of your favourite uh, yeah. Paul songs um, at yeah. the back but if you had to choose um, one album if there's anyone in the room that's never really explored anything of Paul's outside the Beatles what would you um, recommend this one actually Ram I think um, it's just the most uh, it's the most tuneful of, um, of all the things he did uh, after the Beatles mm-hmm. uh, I think I mean it's a, lot, a, a really I mean the odd one the, the, the strange one the, uh, the one that very few people know about is by uh, it's called Electric Arguments. He has this alter ego called the Fireman, which is a duet he does with um, Youth, the, the, uh, the guy who used to be in Killing Joke. Uh, the third of their albums, the first two are quite ambient and experimental, but the third one, Electric Arguments, is, is like a conventional McCartney album done in demo form. And that's one I'd suggest that people who think they know most of McCartney's stuff might want to take a chance on, you know. Paul, I wonder if you'll indulge me a little bit. When I was when I was a kid, when I was about twelve, I was obsessed with Smash It's magazine, run by Mrs. Hepworth and Ellen, who you oh, were, yeah, yeah. you had been colleagues of and would go yeah. on to be colleagues with um, in the future. And what I really liked about Smash It's was the style of questions that they that they asked. And I really wanted to what work. What colour is Tuesday? And that kind of thing. <laughs> if you've been reading my book, <laughs> I really wanted to work for Smash It's, obviously, and uh, that boat has. Uh, has left the port without me I'm afraid but um, the closest I'm ever going to get to asking any pop stars any of these questions is um, asking you because you've, you've met Adamant right you met Adamant 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. and you've met Morrissey, so that's that's good enough for me. So if I could just ask you, have you ever been sick in a gumboot? <laughs> that was an old favourite. <laughs> yeah, for the record, he's not answering that. <laughs> what what colour is Tuesday? It's blue. I don't know why. It's probably the U, the U sound of the other vowel. And, uh, and the, the final Smash It's question, have you ever felt like a roundabout? Oh, many times. This is why I work for the NME, you see. We were on the, we were on the sensible side of Carnaby Street. But I could look, I looked out the, I could look out the window from the NME, and uh, I knew Mark and uh, Dave, and they were about as far as the other side of this room. It was like a medieval street. You could see it in the window opposite. And I thought, God, they're having so much more fun on that side of the street. <laughs> and they were. Um, from your time with the enemy, the, uh, there was a story that I read where, um, and I just wonder if you could clear this up, I don't know if it's a, an apocryphal story or true, but the rat scabies of the damned once tried to set fire to your jacket while you were still wearing it, is that? He didn't try, he did. Oh, it, he did. It, was, it was, uh, well, it was actually, it was, it was him and Captain Sensible jointly. I was in a minibus going, I was doing a, a piece with the damned in the Isle of Wight and I had to travel in a minibus with them from London. And um, they, did, they did many terrible things to me on this journey. But uh, uh, during what, in what I thought was a lull in the proceedings, um, uh, I suddenly noticed that my jacket was on fire. And what, what had actually been happening was they'd been very quietly spraying me with lighter fuel uh, from top to bottom and then set fire to the, uh, the jacket. So I was, I was literally, I was, I was like that bloke on the front of the Pink Floyd um, LP, <laughs> I was on fire. As far as I knew, I was on fire. Uh, they were cackling like demons around me. <laughs> it's like Dante's Inferno. And um, what I didn't know was that after a while, you can kind of bash out the flames uh, of lighter fuel. It doesn't mm. actually necessarily set the human being on, on fire. It comes very close to you. So anyway, yeah, it's close enough to make you sweat a bit. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you you spent a lot of time reviewing records as well, and uh, you were reviews editor on. I did the reviews uh, editor jo uh, job at um, the Enemy and Q and right. Mojo and Heat and Word. Actually, it was something. It was, it was part of the magazine I was always drawn to doing. Did you did you find it harder to review a record that you loved or hated, or did it not really make any difference either way? The easiest kind of review to write, if uh, is a. Sl to be entertaining is a, is, is a slag off. Yeah. Unfortunately for me, I never really hated anything. And I never, I, I, I never really, I, I could never really win a reputation as a, as a vivid reviewer because I kind of liked everything, you know. And um, you end up in a sort of three-star universe and um, that's, no, <laughs> that's no fun for anybody. <laughs> everybody wants the one stars and, yeah. uh, and mistrusts the five stars with good reason. So you, you never really completely trashed anything or nothing, nothing you remember? Um, I was always too kind. Actually. Yeah. Well, that's to your credit, Paul. That's nice. Yeah. In terms of being uh, as a music journalist, what extent do you think uh, it enhanced your listening pleasure or, or was there an extent really to which it kind of took something away from your enjoyment of music? Just personally, you know. Um, well, I mean, it was, a, it was a very lucky life to have had. You know, I felt I was incredibly flukily fortunate to have got this job on the NME, which led to all the other jobs afterwards. But at the same time, you know, I do sometimes like to invoke the um, Oscar Wilde quote that each man kills the thing he loves. You, you get so closely um, 
um, caught up in a particular world, and it does sort of um, kill something at the heart of it. Um, I never stopped enjoying music, I wouldn't say that, but um, it, it, it took me about seven years before I could listen to a Van Morrison album again without flinching, you know, having gone through the... <laughs> Having gone through the Let's Interview Van Morrison yeah. circus a few times, you know, well, we, may, we may talk a bit more about Van Morrison. Morrison <laughs> Mo- took me about eighteen months to get over, and I'm past yeah. all that now, fortunately. Yeah. But um, um, that just it, it, it becomes your job, you know. And it, when it's your job, it can no longer be your pleasure to quite the extent. But what I mostly regret is that I was re- I was I really understood music intuitively when I was a teenager, and then from the age of about twenty. I was about 22 when I started writing for the NME, and mm. after that, it all became a diagram in my head. I never kind of responded. Um, I, when I was 18, when I was 16, I knew that, was that? Roxy, Roxy music. When I was 15 or 16, I just knew that they were the future. I knew that they might not be the biggest thing, but I knew that everything changed. This is a watershed now. Something, mm. and, and I was just hearing this on John Peel's programs, but I just knew. You know, big companies should have been paying me when I was 14 because I could have told them that T-Rex, you know, this funny little pippy band, yeah. they've started playing electric. It's going to change the world. Mm. It's going to change Britain anyway. I just knew that when I was 14 somehow. By the time I was 25 and being paid to make these predictions, I wouldn't have had the faintest fucking <laughs> idea. <you know. laughs> You're like, I don't know. I went to see the Sex Pistols when I was 21. I, went, yeah. I saw the Sex Pistols in the 100 Club just by chance. Again, I knew this is a watershed. Nothing will be the same after tonight. But um, had I gone to see them three years later, I, I would have passed me by. I would have yeah. stayed at the bar, actually. So, yeah. know, so fucking bored, is it? <laughs> <laughs> you lose innocence, and, and you know, with sophistication, you, you lose your instinct. Yeah. Paul, David Bowie, what, uh, what were your immediate impressions the first time you met him? Can you recall? Um, Set the scene. I, I think I mean David Bowie in a way was was my Beatles. Uh, the Beatles had been there when I was a, uh, in my childhood, and then when I was a teenager and and beyond, uh, David Bowie was the big central thing for me. And I, I was probably more obsessive about David Bowie than I was about the Beatles. Mm. Um, David Bowie is. I think we we might misjudge it now. We think David Bowie was one of the biggest stars in history. He wasn't. He was never. A, he was very seldom a big um, selling act. Not until maybe Let's Dance or something. Mm. But all the things which um, every newscaster and supermodel uh, goes on TV to gush about sold about twelve copies back at the uh, back in the uh, in the time of its original release. It's funny yeah. how obscure and left field Bowie was most of his um, career. So I always felt this um, as a as a snobby teenager. I felt a great deal of ownership of David Bowie mm. because. Nobody else at school or college really knew who he was, you know. He had this brief moment in 69 with um, Space Odyssey, which is when I first saw him. He was bottom of the bill of one of those old-fashioned um, 60s package tours. Top of the bill was Humble Pie. And mm. uh, David Bowie was right at the bottom. Odd is odd the hierarchy is in, in retrospect. But yes, but Bowie was an obsession, really, of mine. And mm. uh, so... As with meeting um, McCartney before meeting Bowie for the first time in, I think that was 1988 or 89 or something. Uh, that was, a, again, that was a really strange experience because you can't really, again, it's the two voices are going on, you know, it's mm. here's me talking to, to David Bowie, but in my head it's, bloody hell, it's me talking to David Bowie. 
So um, that took a while to get over. Yeah. Um, and and I, I've talked to I talked to him I don't know five or six times over the over the years. And and what was he like in person? How did he? Uh, he's metic- meticulously um, polite. Um, he's not as fluent a talker as as McCartney is. He's, but he's um, he's possibly a more thoughtful <coughs> uh, speaker. He does actually try and um, think out what he's going to say. He doesn't have his stories um, all lined up in the way that McCartney mm. uh, too often has, really. Um, but he was a, he was a, he was, a, he was a fascinating man to uh, to speak with. Uh, I think quite nervous, um, quite reticent actually. I think given the, given the choice, he wouldn't be sitting down doing interviews. Hmm. Whereas McCartney, given the choice, would sit down and do, do interviews. Quite happily. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a kind of form of recreation. It wasn't for for Bowie. You know, Bowie really needed to hear. Um, uh, your questions so we could think about them mm. with McCartney you're just kind of teeing up a subject and he'll just deliver the anecdote that he's got um, uh, on the roller decks in yeah. his, of his mind you know in terms of books because I know that he he had been writing a book for for a little for some time hadn't he I think uh, a book of his was it his memoirs that he was writing or well uh, he, he was telling me about this years ago um, did, did you ever find out any any more about where things no, were up to on it no no but uh I mean, one of the things I admired about him in the, in the later stages was just how genuinely private his life was. Mm. You know, every single musician you talk to will always say, "Of course, I'm not like the rest. You know, I'm a deeply private person. I'm not one for going to glittering receptions and being on the red carpet." It's which is an out and out lie because that's what they live for. <laughs> that's what they pay people thousands of dollars a month mm. to ensure that they are photographed. At, these kind of things, but Bowie, um, though he wasn't, he wasn't actually a recluse. He did actually keep his private life private to the extent that even the people who worked with him had no idea what was going on at the end. You know, bar two or three intimate acquaintances. I thought that was quite a cool thing, actually. Mm. God, I really, I, you know, I really admired him and that last, and bringing out the best music of his life as well. Who else is going to do that from that generation? Not, you know, McCartney won't do it, and McCartney's still good, but he's not going to bring out the best album of his life at this stage. So we're going to play uh, a track now from Station to Station, which is, is it pretty much your favourite Bowie album? I think so. You know, like our our mutual mate, um, David Hepworth, has just brought a book called 1971, Mm. which he maintains was the the golden year, actually. uh, (laughs) He's he's obviously wrong, is the correct correct answer. He's 1976, and this was the the best single that wasn't made by the Sex Pistols. In 76. Okay, well, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Deaf School now, which is, uh, as it says on the uh, the front here, the non-stop pop art punk rock party. Uh, it was a uh, band from uh, that formed in Liverpool in the 70s. Um, Paul, could, for anyone that doesn't know about Deaf School, could you give like a... I.e. everybody. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, <laughs> let's be honest. Maybe a brief history and what it was about the band that made just you want one of, to... Just one of the great uh, lost... Band, you know, one, one of the bands that fall between all the, the gaps of history. Uh, they were a kind of cabaret-ish uh, art school band in Liverpool, um, formed in the 70s, just before punk. And um, they signed a huge record deal with Warner Brothers, and they were widely suspected to be the next big thing. They weren't, because this was the summer of 1976, and what nobody saw coming over the horizon was punk rock, which absolutely blew deaf school out of the water. Uh, they were so completely wrong for the time. But they were a great band uh, full of 
wonderful um, songs. And um, the, the musical director is a guy called Clive Langer, who's a um, friend of mine to this day, a London guy who was at Liverpool Art College. Clive uh, was trying out all kinds of experiments with deaf school, many of which only really saw fruition after deaf school had split up. They only lasted about uh, three years. Uh, but all of Clive's, Clive Lang's experiments with deaf school can be heard down the years. Um, three, three bands that um, will, will openly state they base themselves on deaf school uh, are Madness, Frank Goes to Hollywood, and Dexie's Midnight Runners. Um, Clive produced Madness, Dexie's, Elvis Costello uh, with Elvis. He co-wrote the classic song uh, Shipbuilding. Uh, Clive is a Clive is a real uh, genius, actually, who can walk the streets utterly unnoticed. Mm. Um, but the the, the the deaf school song that I, I thought I'd um, uh, play tonight is called "Hi Joe Hi." It's just it's just a simple throwaway thing. But if I could ask you to listen to the uh, staccato um, piano, there's a kind of won really wonky piano solo which Clive uh, played. He based it on if anybody remembers that Thunderclap Newman. Um, song Something in the Air mm. when the late Thunderclap Newman one of the many recently deceased rock legends um, he plays this, it's, kind of, it's a kind of dr semi-drunken pub piano style you know and uh, Clive does one of these fantastically well in the middle of High Joe High Clive grew up in Hampstead with the future members of um, uh, Madness, Madness. Uh, the female singer on this, Betty Bright, is to this day married to Suggs uh, the, the madness, deaf school connections are deep. Anyway, the whole band madness, their entire career is based on this track. Oh right. <laughs> so it's got some. It's, you know, you may not like it, but it's got it's got a bit of historical interest anyway. As well as books about specific artists or or bands, you've you've written books about um, cities as well, the music scene of uh, and the history of Liverpool and also of London. In terms of the two cities, um, how do they? differ musically, would you say? What are the main characteristics which set them apart? Uh, people in London have the phone number of a good manager. Mm. Um, <laughs> people in Liverpool have got the number of the Pracky Room, and that's as far as it goes. And they never even make it to the Pracky Room more often than not, because uh, they get mugged by a pub along the way. And uh, no, London is a, much, is a business city. London is all about money. Mm. Uh, Liverpool wishes it could be, but it can't. You know, Liverpool hasn't got its act together, but Liverpool is a is a is a, is a charming, magical place. You know. London is all about money and um, commerce and news, and um, Liverpool is about drugs and psychedelic Celtic sunsets, and uh, they're, 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 they're totally different cities. And I'm I'm permanently scrambled because I commute once a week between the two cities, and right. I. Since I've been doing this since 1972, you know, I'm completely um, confused on a permanent <laughs> basis because I can't psychologically adjust. To, to, mm. um, but when I was growing up as a kid in Liverpool, I knew that my favourite music, apart from the Beatles, was um, bands like the Small Faces and the Kinks, mm. which were great storytelling bands. And um, it was only late that I understood this was a London characteristic, this storytelling thing, which in my head, crystallised with um, Ian Jory, whose Kilburn and the High Roads album came out in 1976. Mm. And that was what I reviewed when the NME were asking people to 
send in sample reviews, and that's what I uh, that's how I got on my job actually at the NMA through. Uh, so London music has got a distinctly uh, storytelling vibe to it, which uh, which I love very much. Over the years, all the different uh, musicians that you've interviewed, who who do you think has been probably the most eccentric, uh, just the, the strangest interview that you've you've had? Did anyone spring to mind? And most of them, most of them are loonies in some way or other, you know? but 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 fascinatingly so. And yeah. they're all a bit strange, and they have they to varying degrees of 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 success. They turn that strangers into, into something uh, of great artistic merit. I mean, Van Morrison is a, is a, is in a category of his of his own. Yeah. Um, Courtney Courtney Love was one of the weirdest. Um, interviews I ever had to do. She, she's one of the, she may be the only person who's actually stripped off naked when I was interviewing her. That's something you were glad Van Morrison didn't do, I presume. <laughs> no, no. No matter how much I hinted, he just wouldn't. Uh, not only did she strip naked, she also passed out as well at different right. times as well. That was a strange day at the office. <laughs> was it? it was, yeah, yeah. I've got some questions written down here, so we'll uh, we'll start with these and then uh, we'll we'll take some from the floor. Uh, question from Tim, I believe. Uh, do you think there's a future for print music press? Brackets. Enemy looks a bit sad these days. Close brackets. Will it have a comeback like vinyl? Is there a future? Oh yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it will. I mean, I think, I think a printed magazine, whether it's about music or anything else, is such an attractive. Um, uh, uh, product, for want mm. of a better word, and so many of us love these things. I can't see why uh, the market for them will will disappear. I mean, I can't I can't foresee a time when when printed magazines will be the uh, the primary vehicle for that kind of information uh, that they used to be. Just as I can't really, f- much as I love vinyl, I can't foresee vinyl becoming the main music carrier again mm. in the way that it used to be. But that's not the same as predicting its uh, extinction. The music press has obviously got to. It's going. It's going to be rationalised by economic forces, whether it wants it or not. Uh, another question: Do you know if McCartney's visited his childhood home since uh, National no, Trust took it over? He hasn't. I, I know the people who run both uh, Paul and John's uh, homes in uh, mm. Liverpool. Very nice couple, Colin and um, Sylvia. And uh, they're very wistful. Uh, you know, John's not going to be coming round, of course, but uh, they wish Paul would. And yeah. uh, He's been spotted outside, uh, okay. but he hasn't uh, actually come in. Uh, the person who has visited both homes, of course, is Bob Dylan. Oh, yes, with, a, with his hood on. His. With his hood on. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, but he, he did make himself... Colin, uh, Colin is a really nice guy, and I would recommend the, uh, uh, the National Trust Houses mm. if you go to Liverpool. You have to go to a hotel in the city centre, and the bus takes you out uh, to the two suburban houses. Anyway... Um, one day, um, the bus turns up, and they're mostly middle-aged ladies, apparently, for some reason, tourists. And there's this, this guy in a, in a hood, and he takes his hood off, and Colin, of course, recognises. He says, what, 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 you know, what do you say when Bob Dylan just turns up on what's effectively your, your front path? And so he says, welcome to Mendips, the childhood home of John Lennon from the years <laughs> 19... He just went into his... Paralyzed with fear, he just went into his normal routine. And Dylan, kind of, the ladies in the, the other, of the other, uh, the rest of the coach party, they kind of twigged what was going on. They mm. said, "You look after him. We will look after ourselves, and we'll we'll meet up later." Yeah. And so Colin takes Bob Dylan on a private tour around uh, Mendips, 
And um, Dylan was really kind of um, studious. Mm. And he was saying, you know, that the strangest thing is this house is the exact size, uh, the exact dimensions and room arrangement as, as the house I grew up in, Hibbing, Minnesota. Oh, okay. I had a bedroom here, just at the front. My parents had a big bedroom just around to the side. We had a kitchen. It's exactly the same house. Um, and um, they've, got a, they've got a 50s guitar in Lennon's uh, old bedroom. It's not Lennon's real guitar, mm. but it's a, it's a 50s guitar of that era. Yeah. A kind of toy guitar. And Dylan takes it off the wall, which no one else is allowed to do. And, <laughs> and uh, he tries to play it. But, and Colin said it was really sad because Dylan's got really bad um, arthritis. Oh. I mean, these, these guitars would have killed you anyway. And yeah. So unplayable. Yeah. Really, High things. action. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, and Dylan was trying. He said, no, no, man, I can't do it. I can't do it. Yeah. But he tried to play this 50s uh, 50 guitar. But oh. he was very sweet. You know, he was very... Um, yeah. As I say, very studious. You had a question before, didn't you? Yeah, um, you were playing Elvis Costello when we walked in. Um, I had a real fascination with him in the late 80s, early 90s, around that time. And I was yeah. live in Liverpool. And, um, that was around the time he was collaborating with McCartney, actually. Yeah, I read, I read yeah. an interview with him, I think it might have been in the NME, in which he's, he said Liverpool was one of the few places he felt a real affinity with and really, really liked and felt at home in. And I just wondered whether you ever interviewed him. Yes, quite a lot. Uh, I, I did him quite a, quite a lot of times. Um, he's interesting to me, in part, from, part from his music. He's interesting to me because he's, he's he's a creature of he's a creation of Liverpool and London. You know, through his background, he was he, he, he was born in London and spent his first sixteen years there. But his parents were Liverpudlian, and he went back for his in his teenage years and played his first gigs as a musician in Liverpool and uh, as part of that Liverpool music um, scene. Um, so I wrote books about Liverpool and London in the end and Costello gets a, uh, a chapter in both of them because he, he kind of belongs to both um, cities. He's a very interesting man to talk to. He's a difficult man to talk to in some ways, um, not because he's hostile, but because he's he's so demanding. He, he, he really wants to know that uh, what you mean by every question and um, he wants to be sure that you really know uh, the subject because he, he he's so encyclopedic in his knowledge of music. It's uh, it's quite intimidating, really. You know, I mean, you kind of you think you kind of know a bit about music, but then you're up against Elvis Costello and you realise how ignorant you actually you actually are. Yeah. And he's tremendously forthright and self-confident in conversation as well. He's quite. Um, He's not, he's not scurry, but he's, he's tough. He's a tough interviewer. Yeah. A tough interviewee, I should say. He's got a kind of a quiet intensity about him. Absolutely, yes. That's yeah. a very good, good way of putting it. I mean, he's a nice man. He's got impeccable man. Like Bowie, you know, the thing you go away thinking is, what nice manners he's got. Hmm. But, he's at, but, but he, is, he is intense, incredibly intense. Any other questions, Matt? Yeah, I just wondered uh, your thoughts were about Paul McCartney's relationship with George Harrison. Yeah. Um, you get these really touching stories about them as teenagers before George joined the Beatles. Yeah. Going hitchhiking to Harlot. And then later on, certainly from George's point of view, you've got the impression that he, he didn't really like Paul. Yeah, yeah. I just wondered what your thoughts were on their relationship. Yeah, it's funny. M- M- McCartney talks in the book about the younger boy on the school bus um, whom Paul introduced to John. He 
Paul kind of sponsored George into the band. Um, but in a way, there's a, there's, a, there's a clue to the problem, really, uh, the way that they, Paul and Job, would say, oh, yeah, George was the great little kid on the bus. Um, there's something just a little bit you know, patronising about it. Because uh, George's problem was that he never outgrew the role of being the kid on the bus in, in the Beatles. And um, what became really frustrating for George, I think, not that I, I didn't interview George at any stage. I was due to one day, and then Mark Allen rang up and said, actually, I'm going to do it instead. So, so I never got to meet George Harrison, but I'm not uh, bearing a grudge about that. Um, but George was in this funny dual position at the end. In the room with the Beatles, he was always the kid. But if he went out of that room, he could go into a room with Eric Clapton and Bob Dylan, Delaney and Bonnie and the band. And they're all in awe. You know, even Bob Dylan shows respect when a member, member of the Beatles comes in. Eric Clapton is worshipping a member of the Beatles, uh, let alone the band and Delaney and Bonnie and so on. Mm. So George is thinking, hang on, you know, uh, why, am, why is my status down on the floor when I'm with these people? And yet up here, I'm the most important person in the room. It was a very schizophrenic time for him. McCartney was... Uh, regret a few times he talks about George he's regretful he thinks he was overbearing and he says he finds Let It Be quite difficult to watch because Let It Be as you probably know shows Paul it is you know McCartney's problem is he is a workaholic and he just wants to get the job done and he's very focused and the others were more kind of organic let's kind of let's kind of tool around for a few hours and see what comes out of it you know McCartney would be Come on, we've got to we've got to get this done. We've got to we've got to meet the schedules and blah 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 blah. So that was awkward. And McCartney's a bit regretful now. He thinks he was a bit of a bully. Um, but again, more so. Funnily enough, George uh, George Martin uh, he was more candid about it, saying we we all we all underestimated George Harrison. Uh, and I think some of the the evidence uh, to some extent. So if you if you if you listen to all things was pass. You know, this wasn't George making a solo album after the Beatles. This was George unloading all the things that he couldn't do when he was with the Beatles. Um, to some extent, that was true of Paul as well. He did. He was. He was doing Beatles songs for his first few solo albums. But, but George didn't even get a look in. You know, it was. Um, and I think they. I think they all felt a bit embarrassed. And uh, the consolation, I suppose, for George was that at least on Abbey Road, which is really the Beatles' last album, he did get. Uh, what is by common consent the standout track uh, in something? And uh, here comes the sun. People, a lot of people say the two best tracks on the the whole album. Okay. Any any last questions? Oh, just a few more. Right. Uh, well, we'll go to yeah, did, did you ever hit a nerve in any of your interviews? Um, yeah, just saying a load of Van Morrison hits a nerve. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tip. That's a typical journalist. That's a typical trick question from a journalist. Van Morrison story. Yeah. Van. Oh, um, I mean the prime Van Morrison story was uh, nineteen. I don't know when it was. Eighty-nine or ninety or something. Um, he had a new album uh, coming out, and um, as was the routine, we put in a request, or they, or his PRs came to us and said, "So you know, Van might do a, might do an interview," and. Um, uh, uh, yes, uh, the catch is that he's decided this this time he doesn't want to be interviewed uh, by a journalist. He wants to be interviewed by Spike Milligan, <laughs> who was um, who was a childhood hero. Van was a 
you know, lonely boy in Belfast uh, listening to the listening to the wireless and listening to the Goon Show and. Um, Yes, quite. Uh, well, he loves humour, he just can't do it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, I, and I thought, oh, right, well, God, that's, that's that then. But Mark Allen, who was the editor of Q at that time, was, he's much more tenacious than I am. And he actually hits the phone and tracks down Spike Milligan's agent. And Spike Milligan doesn't really care. He says, oh, yeah, yeah, I know Van Van. I met him backstage at a Chieftain's concert in Dublin. Yeah, yeah, bring him round. So I'm assigned to... Um, Take Van Morrison down to Sussex to, um, to to Spike Milligan's house, which is coincidentally just up the road from Paul McCartney's house, and, and I've got to try and orchestrate a conversation between um, Van Morrison and Spike Milligan. Van Morrison spends the whole of the car journey down the on the, on one of the very first mobile phones, huge brick thing, yeah. shouting at his record company. Um, his manager is driving the car. He occasionally goes off the phone to shout at his manager, and then he and then he starts moaning at me because I'd had a run in with him once before. I'd interviewed him and Paddy Maloney, and Spike's lawyer came along and said, "Before you can talk to to Van, you've got to sign a disclaimer, giving Van all rights to the interview." And I knew that this couldn't happen. You know, you can't. Anyway. Big row. There's always a row with Van Morrison. Uh, so the manager's driving us down, and we're going through this little town of Rye, and we get to a level crossing. Uh, the level crossing closes. Uh, the manager stops the car, because, you know, I don't know whether you drive it, but you do drive it. Yeah. Apparently, you've got to stop when a gate oh. goes down to level crossing. The manager stops. I understood why he was doing it. Van couldn't see why he was doing it. <laughs> What the fuck are we stopping for? Are we ever going to get to Spike Milligan's fucking house today? And the, and the, the manager said, I'm really sorry, Van, but, you know, there's going to be a train, I think. I think, I think that's the general line. Van, Van goes, fuck this. Gets out the car, slams the car door shut, yeah. stomps off down the country lane in Rye. Train comes back. <laughs> The gate's open. The manager drives across because we're in a queue of traffic, obviously, and tries to tries to pulls over on the far side. We look around, try to find Van is back on the other side. By now, the gates have closed again because <laughs> Van is stuck with steam, like a Beano cartoon, steam coming out of his ear. Eventually, we get him out to Spike Milligan's house, and a really difficult uh, few hours ensues of intense social awkwardness. Mike toes are curling just trying to remember it and um, he wouldn't do pictures we had a photographer who'd been there all day setting up a little studio Spike was lovely I mean you'd think he'd be the mad one you know you'd think he'd be the difficult one but he was really lovely I didn't really know much about him I was a bit I didn't kind of know the goons but I, I knew who they were but um, I found him really funny he was just genuinely he just generally made you laugh, you know, and I'd never really understood that before about Spike Milligan, but I, I just got him all of a sudden. He was so charming and hospitable and funny, and Spike is just stomping around, uh, Van is stomping around the garden, shouting into his mobile phone and refusing to do pictures, and Spike uh, says to us, I think I'm going to try and warm him up to get him to do some pictures. <laughs> Spike goes out and goes to a chest of drawers. He finds a gigantic plastic penis on an elastic band, which he puts around his, his face. 
He goes out into the garden and starts capering around. And there's Van Morrison. We've got pictures of this. And Van Morrison's on his foot looking at it. <laughs> Eventually, even Van has to start, has to break down and start laughing and pointing at the sight of Spike Milligan capering around the garden with a giant plastic penis on his, uh, on his face. And... Um, so we get a few, we get a couple of pictures. We don't get the lovely joint portrait. We're looking for a lovely, affectionate portrait. Mm, arms around each other. Arms around yeah. each other. You know, a few affectionate tales about Ireland and blah, 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 blah. That's what we were expecting. None of that, of course, happens at all. Um, and then Van, uh, so we get some pictures anyway, and then Van goes out again to make a few angry phone calls again. And Spike Milligan turns around to me and she tells me, says, Van, Van, He's really strange, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I thought, talk about the experts' experts. You know, when <laughs> Spike Milligan says that to you about a third party, you know, you think you've 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 entered the land of strange for sure. I can hear her heartbeat. Have any more questions, <laughs> ladies and gents? Yeah, Darren. Uh, yeah, I read um, Nick Kent's book fairly recently. I was wondering what you yeah. made of him and uh, whether you got on. I, d- I did. Um, he he was one of the sort of star names at the enemy when I was reading it as a teenager, and um, then to actually then to get a job myself on the enemy and be uh, in the office with Nick Kent was uh, was quite uh, uh, intimidating. Uh, I mean, Nick is a very strange character, and in those days he was he was he was the kind of he was the kind of Keith Richards of journalism or something. Um, and one of his idiosyncrasies was that uh, he never he would never use a typewriter. This is before computers. We, all, we were all working on uh, typewriters, but Nick wouldn't even use a typewriter. He would only write in longhand on any piece of paper which came to hand. You know, sitting here, he'd, he'd rip the front off that book. He'd write a few sentences. He'd take that piece of paper off you. He'd write a few sentences. And um, when I first started there, I was kind of the, the, the lowliest. I was learning how to sub and proofread and so on. And one of my jobs was always to write up um, Nick Kent's pieces. And they would arrive on your desk in a kind of confetti of the backs of cornflake packets and the backs of bus tickets. And you had to sort of... And his sentences are extraordinary. That He'd write in these serpentine sentences that go above and below the surface of the water and um, re-emerge. And then just when you think they must be at an end... They find a new lease of life, and they go on for a few pages. And um, I mean, he was a gifted. He was. He, well, he is a gifted writer, and that was um, a wonderful kind of education, uh, transcribing um, or typing up Nick Kent's uh, copy. And then the first time he kind of deigned to acknowledge me was a great thrill. And he came over actually and said he'd liked something I'd written somewhere. And Charles Shamari did the same. And. Uh, I thought, God, that was how nice of them. They didn't have to do that. They were mm. both really supportive, uh, those two characters in the end. There was another hand went up. Uh, yeah, Matt. Um, it's, it's a Liverpool question. Whenever I talk to anyone from Liverpool about music, everyone's got an undiscovered genius of the Liverpool scene. So it's like uh, Mick Head or uh, Mavers or... Uh, Jimmy Campbell. Okay, I was going to ask, so tell, tell me about him. <laughs> uh, Jimmy Campbell, who I romantically describe as the um, uh, the Nick Drake of Crosby, um, <laughs> thus dooming him to even further, up, deeper obscurity than he has already suffered in. <laughs> uh, Jimmy Campbell was in um, almost the only psychedelic band to come from Liverpool in the 60s, who were called the, uh, the 23rd Turn-Off, 
which sounds kind of magical, but it only meant that he, he had a house near Junction 23 off the M6. <laughs> uh, and they wrote uh, this little, he was in a beat band, the, uh, the Kirby's. Then, he had, then, he, then they went psychedelic, which none of the others did apart from the Beatles. The rest just went off to play in working men's clubs. Um, but the Kirby's became 23rd turnoff man. And they wrote, they had a song called Michelangelo, which is one of the psych rock classics of English um, psychedelia. Mm. Um, they didn't go anywhere. Um, Jimmy Campbell then made some singer-songwriter um, albums in the early 70s, uh, which I think are just classics of that particular of that particular form. Um, they never they never really got it. It was tipped to be the next big thing and so on, and never really uh, happened. And he just kind of retired to the pubs in Waterloo and drank and drank and got iller and iller. And um, I was going to interview him and I was doing my Liverpool book because I really did worship Jimmy Campbell. By the time I tracked him down, uh, they said he's just too ill to talk. He's just sitting in the corner of the of the um, you know the pub in Waterloo, and um, he uh, he died about uh, a week uh, a week afterwards. I was going to, a week after I was trying to uh, speak to him. So he's a, you know he's a tragic lost uh, footnote of the uh, the Liverpool story, really, Jimmy Campbell. I guess we'll uh, we'll wrap it up here, Paul. Thank you very much for thank coming you. to Glossop Record Club, and uh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you yeah, very much. It's been an honour. Thank you. Thank you.